Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Realm presents The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox. Episode 8 Forty years before you find yourself behind the wheel of the cab. Fifteen before the storm and the ship and the white-hot sear that burns half your face and most of the heart from you. There is father in his chair, as craggy and wrapped round with tobacco smoke, in the light of the kerosene lamp, as rack-wreathed Neptune himself. Time has stolen more things from your life than it has given back. But the memory of his voice, and the smell of him, and the steady swell of the fishing boat beneath your bunk will go down with you to the place where all things are finally, blessedly scrubbed clean. He has a book in his hands. He turns a page with one of his great squared-off fingertips. To look at those fingers, you wouldn't think them nimble. And yet... They're the same ones that will teach you to tie a sailor's knot and pull the trigger of a rifle untremblingly before the ocean eventually takes them back. Looks can be deceiving. The hoariness of that old chestnut makes it no less true in the telling. In your memory, he takes a few moments to find the page he's looking for. You remember being impatient. This is your favorite part of the day. Life on the fishing boat is hard, but at the end of every evening there's just you and father, alone together in his cabin. He clears his throat and begins to read aloud. Fear death? To feel the fog in my throat, the mist in my face. The deck of another ship, far grander, pitches and bucks slowly beneath your running feet. Your cohorts on the team struggling to keep their footing as the swells increase. You have no such trouble. The rock and sway is part of your blood, and you are a great favorite of the sea. Your mother was a selkie. The bones of all your drowned ancestors darn the North Atlantic floor, and the Black Sea is just one of that great mother ocean's wee-suckling pups. You walk astride a tide of the ones whose lives brought you to this world, and this place in the world and this moment in the world. And their unseen hands will not let you fall, nor falter, even as the storm worsens, and the buzzing in your head increases to a choral wail, and the only way you can fight it is by repeating Father's poem. When the snows begin, and the blasts denote, I am nearing the place. Like a prayer, As the fell voices get loud enough to addle your senses and send you to your knees, and you shout the words into the storm that's less a true storm and more a black blast from something else far more malevolent, a whirl of hate and hungry malice, wearing the false face of an honest gale to mask its real intentions. The power of the night, the press of the storm, the post of the foe, And soon you will learn far more of those real intentions than any mortal should. 
But for now, you press on toward the source of the siren song, hoisting the old poem ahead of you like a shield, as the lower decks fill with black-eyed, black-robed figures, a knife in every hand, and most of your comrades driven senseless by that mad howling chorus on the wind, so that their throats are slit easily as day-old seal pups. Where he stands, the arch fear in a visible form, yet the strong man must go. It was you, you say to the woman from the night of the storm, seated in the back of the cab. Forty years, Widdershins, you ask father what the poem means, and he smiles slightly before bidding you good night. Waves lap gently at the trawler's hull. In the here and now, New York flashes and glints. Too bright, too charged, a live wire left on a wet deck. You hate it, and every fiber of you screams, don't touch it. But the strong man must go. You must finish what you started on the Black Sea. For Ari, if not to satisfy your own sense of honor. We've met before. You remember? Yeah, I remember you. You're John Craddock. You took a short walk off a long bridge after sampling some of the NYPD's finest lead. Where's Abe, you murdering son of a bitch? Shafe. Shafe? She mocks the way your scarred jaw muscles struggle to unclench. The way your tongue drags its leaden heels. Shafe? Why the hell should I believe a single thing you say to me? You could try explaining that you're on the same side. You could go through all that's come to pass since the night of your fall into the river. It would be easier if Ari were here to speak for you. But she's elsewhere, as safe as you can make her, pursuing other paths. A rock. You manage. Finally. What are you... Big rock. In your hands. Covered in blood. Dead Jerry. The woman goes still as summer doldrums. You hear the breath snag, rusted in her throat. We've met before. You say again. You speak as patiently as if you're talking Ari through a particularly tricky bit of trajectory analysis. September 1914. Sirens. Black eyes. Oh my god. If that's your god, my duck, you think, it's no wonder you're in this up to your blessed neck. But all you say aloud is... The Rose of No Man's Land. Heard you out there in the dark. Got here as soon as I could. You all thought it would be a lark. Because you were young and stupid, and death was either a thing that could not touch you, or a beast that surfaced whether or not you threw your net for it. Take your pick. Sign your name on the dotted line, kiss your sweetheart goodbye, and fly from the smell of fish guts and high tide as far as the army can shuck you. The stink of horse dung and other people's sweat and shit isn't much of a trade-up. But least it ain't boring, ain't that right, my lads? Nothing worse than dying in the same place your mothers and fathers, and their mothers and fathers, and all them that come before had been planted, until the very soil beneath your heels seemed full of clucking tongues and disapproving shakes of the head. Empire banked on that pull, shoveled young souls into the furnaces of its spats by the shovelful. By the time you felt the flames crimping your arse hairs and realized you were kindling, it was already too damn late. The ones who survived always assumed they would be the writing on the wall to future generations. But the tricky bit there is that writing on a wall can be whitewashed over by any ninny carrying a bucket, a brush, and an ulterior motive. Not you, though, eh, Craddock? You were a little older than those boys when the war began, and it was your steady hands and cool head that got you called from the North to do your civic duty. Not you beating down the door to the conscription office. You were useful. You had a talent. Before Father loaded his pockets full of stones and walked into the sea, he gave you a rifle and he taught you a skill. Another memory, 
not as well-loved, but almost as worn. The fields behind Auntie Violet's cottage, sometime after father had to sell his share of the boat. Late summer, maybe. There are bumblebees in the foxgloves, and the heather is slowly going purple-red. Father still has a long way to fall, but he's well on his downward trajectory. Your memory of the fishing boat smells like salt water and kerosene oil and pipe smoke. This one stinks faintly of gin and sheep shit, and more pleasantly of cordite. You'll come to love that last scent. It has a sharp, bitter, almost antiseptic quality that reminds you of iodine, even though it has very little in common with iodine. The walnut stock is cool against your cheek. The two of you have three hours until Aunt Violet gets home from her teaching job in the next village over. You should be at school, too, but father says bollocks to that. There's more important things in the world for a lad to learn than figures and fractions. Father never did give a toss about the rifleman's rule. She wants to go a wee bit high. You'll have to compensate for that, he says. You'll hear it every time you take aim forever after. No matter how crooked or straight, the sights on the rifle to hand sit. She wants to go a wee bit high, as a German sentry's head swings into view. She wants to go a wee bit high, as cultists scatter like black crows, leaving baby Ari unscathed and sobbing at the center of an altar of polished stone. Mind that you don't hold your breath while you're pulling. What had the others in your team heard? as they took aim and charged through the storm, across the decks, into that song that sent them falling to their knees. What snippets of old conversation, spoken by loved ones waiting at home, or on the other side of that great divide the cultists' knives would soon bridge? What did you hear that kept you sane and on your feet that those poor buggers didn't? You squeeze the trigger. Blackbirds explode from the field. The gin bottle you were aiming for shatters atop its fence post, as father grunts his approval. How long have you known that, that it was me you saw? Hmm, night I got shot. Saw your face before I fell. And that's true. You had always assumed the woman in the rift, a hallucination. One more unexplained dangling thread in a night where reality had unraveled like a poorly mended woolen sock. She could have been a fever dream cooked up by your overheated brain during your stay in hospital. Those months had been 40% nightmare and 60% the worst pain of your life. When you finally came out the other end, burns still fresh pink and tingling beneath the mask you wore to hide them, half blind and disfigured but alive, the disbelief and disgust of your commanding officers had convinced you for a time that none of it had happened at all. You had cocked up the mission they recruited you special for. You were either a liar or a raving lunatic. And either way, men had died because of you. Good men with families whose bones now rested unconsecrated at the bottom of the Black Sea. They spat you from the mouth of honorable military service. The nightmares and the visions followed you back to Britain like dolphins riding a boat's wake, grew legs, and trailed you loyally as you slept rough on park benches and in the doorways of churches. Eventually you were left with two choices. Accept that the memories were real, and that it was your CO's who were wrong, or check yourself into an asylum and stay there with all the other shell-shocked, vacant-eyed boys who had only partially come home. After that, it was easy. Confusion had only set in because you let others set the chart of your reality. Left to yourself, you know what's real. The stars fixed in their heavens are real. The waves are real. All that you can see and touch and taste is real. And you know what you saw, heard, felt, fought on that September night. A storm with an eerie calm at its center. A sing-song chanting of voices like sirens. Black-robed figures with eyes like hungry sharks, mindlessly slashing and stabbing at your men. The woman in the rift had been questionable. The visions that followed false as fenlights. All these other things were not. 
Once you let your moral compass take over, your steadfast, unflinching practicality inherited from your father and his father before him, the path became clear. The cult had taken your men, and your honor, and half your face. Many of them had escaped. Presumably many more were still out there, clinging to the underside of the world like barnacles. You would hunt them down, root them out, scrape them clean. The white-hot fire of revenge could only fuel you so far. But a job? Ah, aye. There was something you could wake up for, through all the seasons, hot and cold. And so you have, for many a wandering year, alone at the helm, save for Ari. Or so you thought. I... didn't imagine it. The woman. Nox. Sounds on the verge of tears. Something sharp and stinging coils behind your own eye. It's a hell of a thing finding out you're not alone. You know she's got friends. The cabbie and the reporter, and all the rest you've observed through crosshairs. But there's a bond between those who have survived a thing together that not else'll touch. It really happened like I remember. Yes. Fuck. Her voice cracks. The seat vibrates suddenly beneath the jab of a thrown fist. Fuck! You let her rage. No telling what she's lost, thinking she was the only other one on the hunt. She works her knuckles against the upholstery some more, screams into the lining of her coat, and quietly begins to sob. I like a story that will take me to extremes. And nothing says extreme quite like The Last City, a new Wondery podcast available now. Set in 2072, the city of Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image, which, given its promise of being a miraculous green haven in a climate-ravaged world, shouldn't be too hard to sell but things are not always as perfect and shiny as we'd like to believe. When she stumbles upon a dark secret that could lead to the downfall of Pura's existence if revealed, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. When she's done, and all that's left of the storm is hiccups from the back seat, you speak again. Been hunting them alone a long time then? Her voice squares its shoulders steadies itself. You admire her control. Haven't been hunting anything the past 15 years, but a steady paycheck. Who exactly is them? What do you think I've been getting up to? Why does she think she needs to keep lying to you, now that the truth is run to ground? Them. Black eyes. Robes. I didn't even know those folks existed outside my nightmares until around the time you showed up, buddy. I've seen a lot of weird stuff, but... Wait. Is that what you've been doing? All those people you killed? If it hasn't been her cutting a swath through the cultists, that immediately changes the game. She's still an ally. Of that you're now mostly sure. 
But there are pieces on the board that you can't see the hand behind. Loose ropes on the deck to trip over still. Unless it's the blonde woman's been snuffing them? The lounge singer? She's definitely tangled up in all of this too, but how? Killed them because they were cultists. Kill them everywhere. Been killing them 15 years. Spits trickling down the burn-slick slackened corner of your mouth. You dab at it beneath the mask with an embroidered handkerchief Ari gave you last Christmas. No telling where the child skivvied it from. Deft little pickpocket. Call themselves the Order of the Unknowable. Killed my men. Left me to die. Now, I kill them. So I guess that was you at Nocturne. Aye. And Sivarek? You shake your head. Not mine. There's a thinking kind of silence as both of you chew on opposite ends of the rope. You've been driving in circles around the block pretty much since you picked Knox up. But now you pull over to the shoulder and let the cab idle as you concentrate on sussing out the right words. I see things. You say finally. They're not real. Join the party, pal. Mmm. Figured. And you did. Somehow you know it's been much the same for her. What... ever it was happened that night. It did something to us. Our senses. Our senses for what, exactly? You haven't talked with anyone for this long a stretch since the CEOs grilled you over what had happened during the mission. It's exhausting. Ari, your good, bright wee treasure, she can read your thoughts and wishes from the hunch of a shoulder or the lift of the single eyebrow you've got left. Everybody else wants words strung into sentences. The only things in the world better at knotting themselves into tangled messes than wet fishing net. Something bad. Dunno if it has a name. Unknowable. Like it says on the tin. You shift in your seat so that you're facing Knox. She has to ken what you're about to say. There can be no misunderstanding between the two of you now. You speak as slowly and clearly as you can manage. Something the other side of all this. You wave your hand at the street outside. The cafes and corner shops and delis and commuters trudging home from work. The tenements stacked black against the starless sky. It wants out. It's a mad, bad, hungry thing. It's testing the wire. A fox going at a chicken run. And we're the hens inside. Knox finishes the thought for you. Your good eye meets hers. The visions. They're foxcat. They're the claws scratching. They're a warning. Getting louder. The Order wants to cut the wire. Let it in. Trying to suss it out. Can't let them. Whatever it takes. You wipe at the corner of your damned leaky mouth again. Saliva spilling over its banks. Understand? A shadow of cold fear passes over the detective's face and is gone. She sets her jaw. Steel and whalebone in the make of this one, and no mistake. You don't like many people, but she's at least got your respect for that. It reminds you of Ari. Fearlessness is for adult-pated fools, the truly brave soldier on. In spite of that cold spike in the pit of their stomach... The sweat beneath their pits, as storm clouds gather and the boat rocks a little harder. Got it, she says. Okay, so what do we do to stop it? Is there anything that can be done? Was working on it myself until you come nosing around my flat. Nearly mucked it all up. You think about going in on her a bit more, but she did save Ari. You pull back and just decide to move on with it. The book. Black Sea Codex. Got it? I am so, so tired of people asking me about that thing. No, I don't have it on me. All I can tell you is that it's safe. You sure? Now it's your turn to feel a tingle of fear in your guts. The book is a key you'd rather not lose the location of. I'm not sure of anything anymore, but pretty sure. Ish. 
It would help me understand the stakes if I knew why exactly everyone and their sainted grandmas wanted to get their mitts on it, though. Little help there? You try and think of a good way to explain everything at stake, and settle on one word. Wire cutters. You've never been a great leader of men. The only reason you allowed them to put you in charge of the special team for the Black Sea operation was because each and every mother's son of that lot had been as capable as the next, and so had taken no real leading at all. Twenty men, and not a soul had asked for instructions after the initial briefing, as they boarded the skip and bobbed through the rising storm toward the great black freighter that carried their doom. It was as if they were fingers on a hand, each understanding reflexively what was asked of them. It made you lazy. You, who should have sensed the danger and given the order to retreat when the first horrors below decks were stumbled upon, the first notes of the siren song heard. You could have done that, and you didn't. Your superiors had been correct in one regard at least. You may not have been insane or even a coward, but you were absolutely responsible for what had befallen those men. What should we do? Knox asks again. Craddock, hey! You sort through the loose ends. There's one your mind keeps coming back to over and over, like a gull picking at something dead. The French woman, singer at Nocturne. Leclerc? Knox looks baffled. What about her? Need to watch her. She's tied up in all this. Somehow. Sure Codex is safe. Like I said, it's safe. I made sure. If it'll make you feel better, I'll check up on it again when I get the chance. Please. You bring the cab out of park and start to drive in the direction of Leclerc's apartment. The city passes in pleasing silence for several blocks before Knox clears her throat and has another go at you. Hey, um, so your voice is pretty, um, distinct. The way you speak, I mean. Hmm. Thirty minutes ago you were mocking me outright, you muse. And just now you're a wee delicate doily who cares about my tender emotions? I guess what I'm trying to ask is, was it you that hauled Pack and me out of the fire at Nocturne that night? You let the question flop and shed scales across the interior of the cab. It was Ari who had been responsible for that kindness. Ari, who shouldn't have been anywhere near the Morgan, but who had popped up like a bad penny regardless, as she was apt to do at the worst possible times. Knox you had already planned on saving, but the reporter owed his life to a scrap of a girl he had never met. The currents that push and pull us are so often unseen. You got in my way, you say. But you didn't deserve to die like that. Still had questions to ask you. Well, thanks anyway, for saving my ass. I will, you say, embarrassed, and leave it at that. Running through the city, fleet through the city, quick as a spinning nickel, turning through the soot and stink of the city, flies the girl Ariseka. Pa named her for a beautiful kind of rifle with flowers on the stock, but says she's more like a wee pistol in a boot holster, close to the ground, and two loose buckles away from being underfoot. All over the world they've traveled, she and her pa, following the cruel folk he calls the quarry to all the places they hold their foul rituals. She's lived in St. Petersburg and London and Berlin, and even in Calcutta for a small sweaty minute. But out of the lot of them, New York may be her very favorite. It buzzes like electric lights. It hums like a careless fella, with money jangling in his heavy pockets. Fleet through the streets streams Arisica, all on her freckle-faced, wheat-haired alone. And nobody ever looks twice to ask where she's going, or whether she should be there when she arrives. They all assume she belongs to someone else. It's funny and useful, and means when she goes out scouting for Pa, there's no never mind until she's gotten an eyeful of what she means to eyeball, and slip down a drainpipe and away, 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 down south to Bowery. She's very useful, is Arisica. She's Pa's mouth when he can't find the tongue to speak. She's his seeing eye dog when the visions get too bad, and he needs help finding his way back out again. 
And don't she just blend into a crowd when he needs a pair of eyes inconspicuous? Nobody ever forgets Pa once they've seen his half a face and plaster mask painted to look real, his shuffle and his stammer, and his one good eye glaring blue. Ari, though, she's small and bland as oatmeal, and she slips into the places where Pa can't. Someday they may get wise and shout, There's that little straw-colored sparrow of Craddock's. Smash her, smash her, don't let her get away. But as of now, which is today, that date's as far off as Christmas and 21st birthdays combined. She watches them all. The reporter with the fancy clothes, the big cabbie with hands like ham hocks, the pretty detective lady who nearly caught her the once before Ari went eel and slug and sailed out the window on a March kite's promise. Does she see the cold, hungry man with the two boys and the sad wife? She knows those boys. Their father forgets their names sometimes, they say, and their mama sleeps till the bells at Wall Street go ring-a-ding-ding. Does she know the ugly little fella who runs the cat house beneath the library? All those painted girls entertaining all those lonely men, stinking like too much cologne? She knows those girls. They come up the hidden staircase into the alley for a breath of fresh air and call her the funniest little thing laughing themselves consumptive when she turns cartwheels with a flourish. Ta-da! Does she see the scientist in his lab, sharp-eyed and terrible, only opening the door for delivery men holding jars of ether and formaldehyde? She knows those delivery men. She bums them smokes, and they tell her all the strange things they've seen inside. Pickled beasties and great coils spouting fizzing purple lightning, and blood-stained sheets sailing ghostly into roaring furnaces. Pa says, go have a peep, lass. And Ari sallies forth. There's nothing in the world she loves more than sallying forth. Oranges from California aren't even so nice as surviving by yourself through the twilight, dipping between legs and splashing through pools of hot neon light. A task on your back and purpose in your dodge. Lifting wallets from drunken yokels down from Yonkers for the weekend comes close, but it's not quite the same. In this right here and now, She's going home, to the dour little flat Pa's set up shop in, for their roost in the city. The floor and ceiling both are stained with water and other stuff, and sometimes the taps run rusty, which is nothing new. But when she had to dig that bullet out of Pa's river-shriveled shoulder and take care of him in the fever time that came, blushing and sweating after it was touch and go, and no, 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 for she needed clean water and clean sheets, and neither was especially thick on the ground in the flat. She got it elsewhere, clever Ari, and Pa came back just like he always has. But sometimes Ari wishes there was someone else to run to who was trustable and caring. Someone else to help when Papa's visions make him thrash and cry out in the dark. Shimmy shimmy up the drainpipe goes the girl Arisaka, through the blackened window casing, smearing soot on her fingertips, up and over and halfway into the half-scorched, burned-toast darkness of the flat, when she smells a smell that don't belong, and freezes where she's landed. It's jasmine, and orange blossom, and incense, like an open church door, an expensive lady's perfume. Nobody fancy enough to wear it walks the floors of this tenement. This is a sweat and spice building, a smoke and soot and suds from other people's laundry kind of building. Ari knows trouble when she sniffs it. A hop and spin, and she's back out on the pipe, clinging with all four and twenty. She makes her breath be so quiet and so still. She wills herself invisible, melts into sunset-warmed cast iron, digs her toes into metal rivets, and waits. Sure enough, after a couple minutes of hugging that pipe like it's Pa's good leg, a trip-trap-trip of high heels on hardwood taps, sneaky sly Morse questions from inside the flat. Behold the gargoyle Arisica, stiff stone friend to pigeons and ivy vines. She's nothing worth peeping out the window for, nothing worth craning your neck for, nothing worth cupping your ear to catch the soft rasp of frightened breath for. She's a frozen, flattened shadow from the water tower on the rooftop opposite. She's rust and starlight and bland bare brick. The heels pause, sniffing the air with their click-clacks for little girl thoughts. No little girl thoughts here, no sir, no ma'am. Just empty-headed shadows. Fair enough, say the heels. They pivot, and slowly, slowly, so slowly tap away back toward the front door. And Ari relaxes slightly, 
lets herself be the girl Arisaka again, lets out a deep breath of stale night air. Relief plugs her ears so that she doesn't hear the heels as they turn and whisper soft chittering laughter all the way back to the windowsill. A hand reaches out to twist in her hair. Got you, says the French woman from the nightclub. Her face is white and pinched and triumphant against the darkness. You went back home once after the war. You bought a ticket and took a train north, past all the villages and fields and hedgerows you didn't recognize, until you finally reached the ones you did. Seagulls and high cliffs. Neat little village pinned between Red Rock and the North Sea, fishing boats bobbing in the surf, like no time at all had passed. But time had passed. It always does. When you left, you'd been whole and handsome, if a little quiet for the tastes of some, a wee bit solemn for a young man still in his twenties. As you walk down the lane in the present, mask chafing at your scars, bum leg slowing your gait to a crawl, not a soul recognized you, even the ones you knew from childhood. They either tried not to stare or stopped. And, with kindness, like a scaling knife, Gently asked if you were lost. Nay. Nah, not lost. Just in visiting family. They always looked a little suspicious then, for there were few family members not accounted for in this place. You shuffled past the kirkyard where mother and father were buried. The church spire, a radio tower, beaming prayers up to God Almighty in his distant purple heaven. On down the cobbledy lanes as night gathered, and the sea turned into a black emptiness that struck fear into your heart. This, too, was new, a souvenir of the Black Sea mission. The seething knot the sound of the surf put in your stomach told you what you'd already kenned, buying your ticket back in London. There could be no proper homecoming until the cult was scraped clean from the earth. If they could warp your affection for a thing as lovely and bone-bred into a fisherman's son as the sea... There was nothing in all the world their filth couldn't twist to rot and ruin. But you always were a stubborn fool, and so you came back. You had limped through the twilight to your aunt's cottage, with its whitewashed picket fence, neat as a pin, hollyhocks and foxgloves nodding goodnight in the garden. You had peered in through the window, and saw not a face inside you recognized. The interior of the cottage was as familiar to you as the inside of your own head. But everything else was changed. You would find out later that Aunt Violet had died while you were in hospital. There had been no one left to send notice, for nobody had known where you might be. You slept rough in the kirkyard that night, the sound of the waves seeding endless nightmares. In the morning, you walked back to the train station and paid for a ticket south. That feeling you had gotten looking through the window, recognizing not a thing and realizing you no longer belonged there. It always comes back when you go somewhere you're not supposed to be. There's the strangest flavor of guilt about it, even when you're there on a mission. It's part of why, given your druthers, you prefer taking enemies out from a distance. The scope is the space between Kethnus and Lizard Point. It makes things feel both a thousand miles away and intimate enough to trick your brain into thinking you belong there. Digging through someone's sock drawer comes off a bit rude in a way sending a bullet through their temple never does. Knox doesn't seem bothered, though. Seems to relish it, in fact. She's the first one out of the cab when you pull up to Leclerc's flat. You shuffle along behind taking the stairs carefully while she mounts them two at a time. Again, you think of Ari, who should be getting back home right around now. Not a clue had you about the kind of whirlwind you were reaping when you scooped the wailing toddler off the cult's altar seven summers ago. You had intended to drop her off at the nearest orphanage. For what need had a wandering assassin of a girl child barely old enough to walk and spoon food into her own wee mouth? Perhaps it had been loneliness that made you keep her, or something in the way she shut off crying 
when you picked her up that first time. Whatever the reason, you're glad of it now. She's your eyes and ears, and the best part of your heart. It's a nice building LeClaire's living in. Not the fanciest or the most exclusive, but none of the lights in the stairwell are burned out, and the front entry looks recently swept. It's the kind of place young school teachers and secretaries set up shop their first few years away from home. There's probably a stern landlady lurking about, but lucky for the two of you, she must have put herself to bed already. You trail knocks up the stairs to the third floor. When you finally make it to the top, bad knee screaming in protest, you find her standing stock still in the middle of the hallway. Her eyes are screwed shut, face suddenly pale. You know the look. All too well you know it. You've felt it from the inside too many nights to count. After 10 or 15 seconds, she opens them again and looks at you. Bad one? You ask. She looks taken aback, but nods. Foxcat, she mutters, with a weak half-smile. Just some scratching at the chicken wire. Together, the two of you walk the rest of the way down the hall. You let Knox knock on the door. When nobody answers, she raps again, louder this time. She shoots you a questioning sideways glance. You shrug. Guess we should just let ourselves in, huh? Oh, I, I. For the second time that night, you find yourself touched with embarrassment. Been a long bloody time since you had to interact with anyone who wasn't Ari. It's left you even more awkward and slow than usual. Knox tries the handle. It's unlocked. She steps inside and you follow. The lights are on, but it looks as though nobody's home. It's a large flat, but so sparsely furnished your footsteps echo off the bare walls and floor. There's no rugs, no pictures, nothing warm or settled. A threadbare horsehair sofa squats totally in the front parlor. Water drips dismally from a leaky faucet in the kitchen. The only thing hanging on the wall is a telephone. You've never settled in one place long enough to accumulate much, but even by your standards, it's unsettling. Ari's presence in your life has wrapped the edges in wool blankets and crayon drawings, flowers snatched from parks, and secondhand toys scattered across the floor. This is a rifle with no holster. It reeks of stale cigarette smoke and lingering perfume. Everything is the dead white of a fish's belly. Jesus, Knox says, craning her neck to look around. There's one bowl on the shelf in the kitchen, one knife, fork, and spoon, crammed shoulder to shoulder in the drying rack. The refrigerator holds gin, olives, and something floating, unidentifiable in a jar of brine. Down the hall waits a spacious bathroom with a single towel neatly folded on the radiator. The clawfoot tub shudders and tries to tear itself bodily from the tile floor when you peer in at it, snarling and spurting blood from both taps. You bide it no mind at all and move along to the bedroom. Not a bad one this time. Always something to be grateful for. The bedroom is slightly more normal by most people's standards. There's a big bed with an oak trunk at its foot, but only one side looks to be in use. The vanity's covered in cigarette ash and perfume bottles and half-used vials of lipstick and eyeliner. A wardrobe lists half open, packed to the gills with colorful cocktail dresses and heels. After the wan colorlessness of the rest of the flat, it's like squinting directly into a field of Dutch tulips. I am, Knox says from behind you, so deeply glad I didn't go home with this woman. You ignore the comment and whatever it might mean and move on to the bookcase on the opposite side of the room. Books on religion, books on the occult, books on art history and psychology and the human mind, on musical theory and mesmerism and spiritualism and a thousand other disparate subjects. Many of them look desperately old. Rarely have you come across books this ancient unless you've been going through someone's special collections. A little farther down, you find a shelf crammed with children's books. Lang's Fairy Tales, Hans Christian Andersen, 
something called the littlest scamp. They stand out almost as much as the dresses. Something about the sight of them sends the goose flesh prickling down your back. You pick one at random and pull it from the shelf. It's a slim, leather-bound thing, barely a pamphlet, so decayed and crumbling, you fear it'll fall apart in your hands. There's nothing printed on the spine or cover. Carefully, you fold it open to the first page. Oh, baby's young, the print reads, fly-speckled and faded nearly to unreadability. My book only is made for your language. The goose flesh prickles again, harder this time. At the same moment, Knox makes a surprised noise from the foot of the bed. She's pried open the oak chest. It is quite unexpectedly crammed, chock-a-block, full of toys from every era. There's a plastic baby in a cloth diaper, a stern petticoated porcelain doll with a round face and painted lips, a rubber ball, some jacks, a teddy bear, and a little ceramic woman in a tin casket you vaguely recall goes by the name of Frozen Charlotte. Deeper in, there's a weather-beaten wooden horse on weather-beaten wooden wheels, and a leather animal so moth-eaten and twisted out of shape, it looks like something dragged arse-first from a bog. A shredded kite's bones jut from the jumble, like the wrecked masts of a barkentine. I'm sure there's a good explanation for this, Knox says slowly, but I'm having a rough time figuring it out just now. Hmm, you reply, after giving it some consideration. Not so sure of that myself. At the opposite end of the chest, stacked neatly out of the way of the toys, sits a pile of small framed portraits. They look to be hand-painted. They are at least as old as the books you found. One is of a beautiful noblewoman, her collar high and Elizabethan. Another is of the same lady and the rest of her family, stern husband, cherubic son, angelic blonde daughter. The third, though, oh, aye, that's where things get interesting. For it's the same pair of adults, husband and wife, but both of them wear masks, carved to resemble the faces of snarling wolves. You know those masks. How many times now have you seen them through your rifle scope, eh? The first time you clapped eyes on the sight, it was aboard the uppermost deck of a great black freighter bobbing in the Black Sea. All the rest of your men were dead, and you smeared with gore to make an abattoir floor blush. You'd fought your way through five layers of below deck's hell to reach them, and the things you saw down there, in the guttering glow of the lanterns, would come roaring back in your nightmares for decades to come. The flayed man who looked like father, the dog-headed infant with its jaws snapping and its neck sutures still leaking, the room where the surface of reality simply boiled, like a kettle left on the hob too long, and the things that were not cultists, who took first one brave comrade and then another, snatching them like hungry sharks, writhing up their pants legs like swarms of black leeches, the arch-fiend in a myriad of visible forms, and yet the strong man must go on and on and on, until the dodge and the lunge and the desperate thrust of the bayonet were automatic and red and slippery, then finally back out onto the top deck, stumbling and screaming like a mad drunkard, charging full bore into an eerie calm, a vast circle of chalk and salt, where a great and grand ritual was in full flux. You still don't know how any of the bastards survived after you blew their rescue dirigible out of the sky. The last clear memory you have is of taking careful aim at the outer skin of the gas bag as they scrambled up the ladder, knowing full bloody well what it would mean for you as well if the entire thing came down on top of the freighter, and deciding that, after what you'd seen, you didn't fucking care. She wants to go a wee bit high. Then everything was heat and light and searing pain. I'm calling the morgue. Knox is already up and halfway down the hall. The morgue? What morgue is this? She doesn't respond.
For a long time, you wished these things had not happened to you. What would life have been like if father hadn't been forced to sell his share of the gannet? Where would you have landed if he hadn't taken you out and shown you how the rifle could be an extension of your body and will before he walked into the surf? Would special operations have come calling then? You might have been dead in the trenches of France 15 years ago, with most of you gone to rat shit, like all those other poor grunts. Or you might have survived and gone home to work aboard some other fishing boat. A calm, productive life, smeared with sea spray and scales. Blissfully unaware, there was a cult, mad as March hares, trying to rip the world open like a mackerel's spotted belly. But then there would have been no Ari. Her parents would have gladly spilled her blood to feed their order, just as God knew how many other uncounted children's had been through the years. You're glad you were there to put a stop to that, at least. Maybe someday there will be an end to it. For Ari's sake, and for all the rest of the little ones, you'll keep fighting until you're dead in the ground, or there's a good reason to stop. You follow Knox back into the parlor, She's clutching the handset of the telephone hard enough to make her knuckles glow pale. She bites her lip and swears in Spanish and English both, before wheeling the number in again, tapping her foot impatiently as it slowly rotates back after each digit. Waits. Listens. Hisses and hurls the handset against the bare wall. It bounces off and hangs, bobbing at the end of its curly gallows. No answer. No goddamn answer. What's wrong? She's pushing her forehead against the wall, like there's a chance she can meld with it. Her reply is muffled by the plaster when it finally comes. I mailed the codex to a friend at the city morgue. I thought it would be safer that way. And? And I can't get through. There's no answer. Nobody's picking up. You're listening to The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox, narrated by Pilar Uribe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Realm, listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God. And we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox is written by K. Arsenault Rivera, Brooke Bolander, Gabino Iglesias, and Sonny Moraine. Produced by Marco Palmieri and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith.